Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look ahead to F1 2019 launch season and what we're expecting from the 10 teams. Formula One launch season is almost upon us, and over the next week and a half, ten gleaming new machines, encapsulating all the hard work and optimism of the Formula One teams, will be revealed. For some, they will deliver on the hopes and dreams of those behind them, for others, they will prove to be false idols. But if you can't get carried away pre-season, when can you? I'm your host, Ed Straw, and I'm delighted to unveil my first guest, the 29 specification, Ben Anderson. Can you run through your new features for the year? Hello, Ed. Um, Well, I've recently become a dad for the first time so uh new feature is kid anderson jr um but actually that means i'm downgrading more than upgrading because i don't sleep as much as before uh i don't have as much time to myself as i used to so um it's going to be a real battle for me uh this season to improve and get quicker that's what we call managing expectations yeah yeah i like to i like to be honest with uh, the fans and not try to set objectives that i can't fulfill now who have we got next uh f1 news machine scott mitchell are you expecting to show championship winning form in 2019 no i'm just hoping i do enough to earn a participation medal yeah well you missed out on that last year 
Yeah, I know. They, I, I, really? I, I know that. I know that a big. Uh, I know that. A, I know that a big part of being a modern F1 journalist is to obviously go to all of the races and brag about how many races you go to. I didn't go to all of the races last last year, but if I can get to eighteen of the twenty one this season, I think that's a that's a fairly good. I think that's respectable, isn't it? Does that qualify you for the participation medal? What's the cutoff? I think it should. No. It's more than it's more than you. Way more than you can uh, can get away with doing and still claim a Premier League winning medal. No, you don't get you don't get the Darren Heath do all or none at all medal. <laughs> Correct. And named in honour of uh, one of Formula One's leading uh, photographers and maybe most opinionated photographers, you could say. Well, he's probably the most muted on Twitter photographer. <laughs> you haven't been introduced yet. That's a good point. Yes, sh- shut up. Uh, my final <laughs> guest is the venerable Stuart Codling. Now, from what I can tell, the sheet's just been pulled off you. And the collection of puns and whimsical observations you've deployed so far is very similar to last year. So I guess it's perhaps best to call you an evolution of last year. The face of shock. I think Ed's suggesting I need some more material. I think we're all suggesting you should. I think he's suggesting you're using last year's car again. Well, I was going to soft launch the new car. Well, as <laughs> as as you all know, uh, Ed had put out a sort of a fatwa on on punnery and whimsicality, so uh, ra- rather in the in the manner of the FIA attempting to peg back F1 car performance and make for more overtaking opportunities. It was bad punnery and bad whimsicality. I objected to. You feel the rules have been written to exclude you from the championship? I, th- I think they have. But what I've actually been doing in, in the manner of Formula One's many teams is spend the off season. Uh, working towards uh, regaining some of that lost performance so we've well, been on a fitness drive haven't you I, well in, indeed well i'm always on a fitness drive you know accelerated but, um nothing is unimprovable only unimproved so you can expect equivalent levels of punnery so if you're looking for changes you'll be pun the wiser oh dear that's uh, that's way but I, sh- I should say you have come in looking like you mean business because you you snuck off shortly before we recorded this to to go for the the low downforce haircut yeah, well, you know how people below the line on our Autosport channel are obsessed with appearance. You know, someone's got too tight jeans, someone's wearing walking boots, someone's got unkempt pet hair. I'm not looking at anyone in particular in this room. And of course, someone's uh, maybe a little bit overweight. That's uh, always a popular one. Uh, I, I, of course, <laughs> labour un- under the burden of either looking like Valtteri Bottas or his dad, depending <laughs> on uh, whether you're a drunk Australian or not. So uh, we'll, we'll keep it like that. Yeah, but Codders, this is a podcast. Well, this I got is, mi- this is being this is being consumed in audio form. I got mixed up. Bottas <laughs> is sporting a full beard this season, isn't he? So are you are you going for clean shaven as a point of differentiation? Uh, I, I, I just get accused when, when I appear in our three chumps on a sofa sessions. So no doubt I'll be chastised for that. So if Bottas is sporting a beard, does that mean? Well, there's one of two things it can mean. Either he's evil Bottas this year, or he's <laughs> or the, the the plot's accelerated a few years and it's older Bottas. Let's no, go I with th- evil Bottas. I, I think like all it. It does, same character, different actor. I think he, all it does is commit codders to having to look like a Yamaria Bruni lookalike this year instead of a Valtteri Bottas one. Well, I have signed uh, an autograph as Yamaria Bruni once, so I can always go back to looking like him. One for fans of former minority drivers that are still excelling in GT racing, of course. Uh, shall we? Shall we get on with this? I think we're uh, letting. Codders have well, too much too much leeway. Already. The listeners are rather hoping that we get on with it. Well, you're, let's, let's get. You're worried to... about giving Codders too much leeway. You probably shouldn't have uh, shouldn't be pitching the first question to him. Yeah, as your excellent uh, sheet that I definitely read before we came in here tells in, us. In fairness, in fairness, this this is a very much designed for your particular style of uh, of delivery and picking out the whimsical and the amusing. So uh, you're you're kind of the light relief 
before the <laughs> before the heavyweights. We uh, need it already. <laughs> yes. You've been so heavy. So <laughs> Ben needs it. So here is the question, Codders. Now the glory days of F1 launches. They're behind us. This year's a motley selection of online reveals, rollouts in the pit lane, the odd the odd event. What do you make of the evolution of the of the launch? And is it a shame that we've lost all this pomp and circumstance? I tell you what, I wish more of them were motley, actually, because motley was was the, the the term given to the outfit a clown or court jester wore. And generally speaking, launches are either joyless or quite dull and jejune and done without any ceremony, aren't they? Which it it, it kind of feels like there's been too much of a reaction the other way because when. Formula One was flush with cigarette money. Launches were getting ridiculous, uh, thinking not just in terms of the famous Spice Girls at the Ali Pali launch, but also the the Midland launch where they went to Moscow and pulled the covers off an old car in Red Square or something like that. And one that flies slightly below the radar and probably the most decadent Formula One car launch ever was the 2007 McLaren reveal on the streets of Valencia where they basically took over the city. I think that was Vodafone money un- underpinned that. And a kind of a more flatulent waste of cash you could not imagine. It didn't tell you anything about the car. It was an old car. Really, the excitement about that should have been the new driver lineup of Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton. But just drowned in the noise of, hey, look how much money we can throw at closing a city streets off. We live in a post-financial crash world, though, don't we? You know That example just about predates said crash. And now people have to account, I think, more carefully for their spending and launches are extravagant by their nature also we live in changed times you know these online launches yeah then perhaps not as exciting maybe they're a bit pr managed a bit dull but they fit with the times don't they people on their computers people on their phones it's instant gratification it's there on the time you don't have to wait for a certain uh swell of people to get into one place before you can tell people what they they want to see um and they can divert the money to the car. And they've also got less money to spend as well because those sponsors, as you mentioned, they're not, they're not here anymore. So I just think it's the, uh, the way of the modern world, really. I'm just not sure that um, there, there, there is much more to get out of a launch than, than you have now. I appreciate the fact that a couple of the teams are still persevering with a proper event. It's very good to be able to go there and after two or three months of uh, relative silence, being able to actually sort of be face-to-face with a technical bod or, or the team boss and, and the drivers and sort of get a few get a few points of view. But they're not going to be able to say anything really, and they certainly won't be willing to say anything now that they weren't two months ago. It's going to be the same relatively vacuous noise as it will be until we get into testing really and the cars hit the track. The, the thing that you want from the launch, the way I see it, is it's always like when a football team releases a new kit. I don't care about 30 minutes of bluster while they talk sponsorship, synergy, oh, yeah, these brands really fit well together. I just want to see what the, how, what the, what the strip is and, and how it incorporates the, the club's new sponsor. And, and, te- te- and teams are still making effort uh, where they can. You know, when the, the, the 2017 rules came out and we knew the cars were changing substantially, many teams had proper launch events. Um, Mercedes did the same thing last year at Silverstone, but as the regulations mature and the cars start to look more of a type, there's less to say and less need to really shout about that. And the teams that have got new things to talk about, new liveries, new big sponsorship partnerships or new owners, they, they are holding events still, even in this online age. But what I would say is a problem is when teams rely on 
dull 3D imagery. That that I do dislike that. When if you're going to resort to an online launch, at least make it proper pictures, multiple pictures of an actual car, not a rendering, because that to me always feels a little bit. It's a bit dishonest. I feel you're taking advantage of the fact that there's a lot of excitement from the fans, and you're not actually giving them the real thing. And also, it's only what for some of the teams it'll be three, four, five days until testing. Like, is anyone going to be like spot something and go, "Oh yeah, we've well, got we need to get on that that on the car car for next week"? I mean, I know that ev- everything counts, and it's the, it's all about competitive advantage. But I think if you're going to cut back and only do it online, at least do that properly. Yeah, from a fan point of view. Really, you just want to see the car, don't you? You don't want to listen to a bunch of people in suits coming out with a load of generic blah-de-blah and platitudes. So really, the online launch is, is the way to go. And even from a media perspective, all all we're doing is chasing that magic word content, aren't we? And in effect, we're filling space by interviewing people because, as you say, Scott, they're not necessarily saying anything that interesting. And if... The, the the worst thing that you can do is have a sort of a combined thing where you have a launch event, but then you email out all the pictures. So uh, we're all running around like lunatics at, at the launch trying to get interviews here and there. And someone sitting at home with their trousers around their ankles can get the pictures up before us. Or, I don't know, so, some journalists who can't be bothered to attend might bully the PRs into sending them the sound files and generate a story from that, from our sweat. It's also very... The, the, the standard launches are also very... Uh, tedious for the teams because it changes the timeline for the car build and of course if you're a, a team principal or whatever and you're being asked about what's going to happen in the current season you, you don't know you know you know how close you've got to your targets but you never know what others have achieved so everything is is relative you could have you know you could think oh we found three percent of performance compared to last year no one will have found that with a regiment might think you're doing brilliantly that would be a phenomenal step but then everyone else gets five percent and you're and you're at the back so it's it is a time for, for cautious optimism. And although they could maybe be a tiny bit less reticent with the objectives because they've normally got a reasonable objective about what kind of pace they want to achieve. And normally it is pace relative to the front rather than constructor's position that, that's the most reliable indicator, I would say, because that's not so much dependent on what everyone else is, is, is doing. Inevitably, they have to they have to tone things down. I have quite enjoyed in recent years, uh, we had a flurry of Franz Tost predicting pole positions for Toro Rosso. Which I quite enjoyed, which they or, fi- or fifth place in the championship. That's what yeah, he yeah, which they predicts, never hit, which was which was quite entertaining. I uh, I thought which is unusual because Franz Tost normally does his best to say absolutely nothing, and then you suddenly drop this uh, patently very optimistic <laughs> objective. It's, he uh, has high expectations of his team every year. Well, very very clearly, but uh, yeah, needs to uh, to start meeting them. But but as you'll say, you know, the car is the star, and the great thing this year with the new regulations, which we talked about on on previous podcasts, it will be interesting to see. Whether anybody's had any different interpretations of the of these rules, they're quite they're quite restrictive. So, I'd be surprised if there's anything very obvious we look at and say, "Wow!" And of course, if you've got a trick front ring that you think's got a clever interpretation, you're not going to show that when you uh, when you launch the car. So, well, that's the other element to consider, isn't it? A lot of the time, there are dummies sold in launch season, and it is more about liveries, looks, sponsors, drivers, and team personnel making a bit of noise to build excitement. Maybe giving a little bit back to the fans. A lot of them run competitions for fans to attend the factory or location where they're having the launches. Ferrari did fans asking the the team questions at a launch a couple of years ago, I think. So there's still a place for that kind of thing. But it's difficult to read too much into what happens as an indicator of what's to come in testing or the early races. I think sometimes you do see 
the elaborateness of cars, etc. It's like when the Williams came out last year, it was a big step forward in terms of the elaborateness of the aero. But as Gary Anderson said at the time, it looks fine, but what we don't know is if it all works together. If it all works together and they understand what, why they've done it, then it's brilliant. If it doesn't, it'd be terrible. And of course, it was the uh, it was the latter. So it's yeah, always always very hard to uh, to conclude things. So let's start looking at some of the the big teams in detail. Scott, the first activity is the Huss livery launch, which is due today. The car, I don't think we're expecting to to appear the twenty nineteen car until we get to testing. But rich energy sponsorship, so uh, a big livery change would be interesting to see. Head to autosport.com for that if you're listening to this beyond a couple of hours after after the podcast is released. It should be up there on, uh, on autosport.com. Toro Rosso appears on Monday, February the 11th. The first of the big launches, and I think we have to consider this team one of the big ones now, is Renault, which is Tuesday, February the 12th. Lots of investment there. So what are you expecting to see from Renault? An actual launch, for starters. We're yeah, at Enstone, gonna, yeah. We're actually going to have a, a proper event. Um, well, I think they need to be... Um, they need to be best of the rest behind behind the big three, and they need to take advantage of the of the aero rules change for for 2019 to to cut that gap. This is one of the one of the, be one of the best things I think for Renault this season is that the the hurried through simpler front wings, barge boards, brake duct changes, all of that. What that has given them an opportunity to do is is make amends for the fact that they didn't make as much progress performance wise as they really wanted in 2018. So they've got this roadmap. They came back onto the grid in 2016, nowhere because they had uh, they had uh, basically undeveloped car, didn't they? From um, from when it was it was loaded before. So that 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 was a write off of a season. Good progress in 2017, up to fourth in the championship last year, but performance wasn't quite there. If they really want to hit podiums and race wins in a couple of years time which was their original target they've got daniel ricardo on board they can't afford to fail the money that they're paying him rule change is a good good opportunity for them to get up to you talked about sort of percentages and sort of pace relative to the front i think if they can get within one percent of that that ultimate pace and establish establish themselves as the next best team so that when uh when we get to azerbaijan and everything goes absolutely mental on the streets of baku it's Renault that's scoring a podium finish, not almost by default Sergio Perez and whatever his team is called at that given time. But the most important thing for Renault, particularly at a track like Baku, will be what we can't see at the launch under the skin, the engine. That seems to be the big thing that's really holding them back, has done consistently even before they re-took over Lotus to come back as a, a works team. To me, they seem a little bit behind schedule on the grand plan. I remember speaking to Cyril Bitterbill at the end of... 2017 he was saying right by the end of 18 we should be snapping at the heels of the the top teams and looking towards the podium but they're nowhere near that at the moment and it's always the the motor in the back of the car that seems to be responsible for the majority of that gap to the front and in particular they're keen on finding gains with the v6 itself the conventional engine yet you might say they were relatively happy with where they finally got the airs to it took a long time to get all the all the bits onto the car on the mgu k and everything but the performance in mexico showed that was working reasonably well because that's not affected by the by the altitude i think the other thing as well is scott you're talking about not making as big a performance progress one of the things that martin bukowski their technical head honcho i forget his exact title executive director something like that he talked about how basically everything on the car is new other than the power steering. And I think one of the things about that is if you're Mercedes or Ferrari or whoever, you've got kind of years of well-refined tech, good for packaging, light, you know, giving yourself that extra leeway to design the car you want is all there off the shelf. But if you're a team like, like Renault is kind of trying to recover to that level, you've got to go through all this 
stuff that you can't see that's under the car, but all the many components that are packed into the side pods and everything. And re- sort of renewing all of that and going through it is a big old task. And I think that can unlock kind of another level of, of performance for them to get to. It's kind of some of the pain they've got to get through. But of course, the other downside to that is you go to testing and you've got lots of newer components there you have to prove through. So it'll be interesting but, to see how they go when they hit the track that, if they have little problems that everyone else has long since proved out. That's always the challenge when you're trying to reinvent the wheel effectively. You mentioned Williams earlier and we saw it with Ferrari in 2016. You have a good season and then to take the next step, you need to really be aggressive in terms of how you approach design and you can easily come unstuck and okay I, I went on about the engine being the main thing for Renault but of course in Mexico Red Bull dominated that race with a Renault engine so they know that it's not only that it is a lot of work on the the car side and but the danger is when you've got to do both at once that you just you just run out of runway and you you miss something or you you engineer in some weakness that you don't spot at the time and then kind of ruin your season. So they'll have to hope that they've made all the right choices in the build-up. Danger is that when you do so many changes at once, it just becomes harder if one or more of those bits are underperforming or, or you aren't hitting the performance targets you expected. It, you, you just find it harder to identify the root causes. And of course, only eight days of pre-season testing, so it's, uh, it's, high, it's high pressure. Obviously, they've I've done a lot of work with all these parts to try and make sure it's fine but it feels to me like if we go through to go to the first test and the runners in the garage a lot with lots of annoying little problems that could be quite worrying for them they'll be hoping they can go out and put in the mileage because that will mean that that step they take with all those bits will be to a greater or lesser extent banked and they can focus on the other things but even if they have a, a clean run at testing and we saw McLaren last year after disastrous you know sequence of pre-season tests with Honda actually have a reasonable time of things with Renault but they had design problems baked in to the design of the chassis that didn't show up in testing and it wasn't until a few races in when they started adding more and more trying to add more and more aero performance that they realized actually this isn't working so even if you have a reliable car in testing that's no indication that you've done all your diligence properly there are going to be things that Renault need to tidy up on the on, on the car side as well as the engine side. But one of the disadvantages that they've had compared to, well, three of their rivals, I, th- I think, is a, a slight limitation on the, 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 the test bench at, at Viri. They've got a, they've got use of a new one as of this month, which obviously won't be particularly useful, I would imagine, for the, for the 2019 engine. But basically what they've got now is a greater capacity to to validate the reliability before they get to the track so there is going to be certain things now that they'll be able to run through and test and evaluate without having to wait to see what happens when you actually mount the engine to the chassis and run it on a real track and we've seen in the past those are those are things that caught honda out a lot in 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 2017 and through honda's partnership with red bull and using red bull technology facilities they've been able to sort of work through that a little bit better over the last 12 months it's not something that renault has had certainly not to the same degree anyway the, the the positivity with which they've talked about this new test bench it's always i always find it i mean it's like when a team signs a new driver when as soon as someone talks positively about this new thing they've got the flip side of that is you realize the extent of the negativity or the limitations with what they had before and that's effectively what you've got uh, or what they've had at, at viri until now I think the key thing for Renault and anyone who's excited about them, it's a team on the up, but just be patient because it's a it's a long road up to the front. The pace of progress is glacial when you're trying to catch up with, with Mercedes. And if they can get into the season and finish fourth again, but a, but a better fourth and really 
take a big step or probably end up getting in almost to, to no man's land between the top three and the rest. That that would be a, a good step. I think they're really working towards 2021 and the, the new rules. Let's move on to the next team, Ben. Wednesday, February the 13th. That's a big day with both Mercedes and Red Bull being uh, being revealed. But let's let's talk about Mercedes. Mm. If you were them, would you be concerned about the reg change? Obviously, last year's car wasn't a dramatic departure from the previous years. They've taken nice evolutionary steps and... Obviously, this is a disruptive influence, the fact the error regs have changed. Yeah, I think if if ever you are the, the standard bearer, the top team with the target on your back, you're always going to be concerned about something like this because if you have the fastest car, you have, in theory, the most to lose potentially from rules that are brought in to change those designs and disrupt that. Um, I think the team themselves felt um, when they started running numbers and putting models in the wind tunnel for the first time that they, they have taken a hit of course the challenge for teams is to how the, how quickly they can recover all of that those lost points to the rules it's, you'd imagine teams like Mercedes and Red Bull they're so well schooled so well resourced that they, they just will make up all that deficit really um, and probably well in time for the the first race it's, it's pain but it's pain that they're well equipped to manage um i think the big concern uh, aside from that if your mercedes is will one of our rivals find a loophole in these rules that we haven't because that tends to be the point at which things shift dramatically as we saw way back in 2009 with definitions of holes and diffusers and what's double and what isn't it's pretty unlikely there'll be something like a double diffuser that was very extreme but they spent a lot of time on the regs trying to tighten up and close all these all these potential loopholes, even down to the fact they were mandating what you can do with a flap adjusters to stop them being used to turn airflow. So I guess that that's the I don't think there'll be anything massive, but there could always be something that, that makes a big difference because it's all about you set your airflow up with the with the front wing in particular. So yeah. you can unlock things and then, you know, if you find yourself needing to adapt your whole area map of your car for these changes it can it can cause some, some problems but and mercedes of course you know they had problems at the, the rear of the car didn't they last year with particularly rear tire cooling and management and that is all affected by airflow which as you say starts at the front and is managed from there so with rules that have targeted the front cleaning up all the flicks and various devices that will have a massive effect downstream and it's whether uh a consequence of that undoes some of the work that Mercedes has done previously to get on top of its own weaknesses. They're not a flawless operation by any means. So you know, there'll be some there'll be some concern in Brackley, I would have thought, and until until we get to Melbourne and um, if and when Lewis sticks it on pole and they can then breathe a sigh of relief. They did pretty well through the seventeen rule changes, didn't they? Nothing, nothing went wrong for them there. Really, I think no. what, what they became. What, that was what they were proud of, weren't they? They became the first team to don't know the use of defending a title is as contentious in uh, in this office at least when it comes to style. But they became the first team to defend a title, continue to be champions through a through a major rule change, didn't they? So, and this anyone, is not as major, is it? That's no, the thing. but so if anyone can deal with it, Mercedes can. Although also should be said that one of Mercedes' weakness compared to Red Bull and Ferrari was ability to follow in in traffic. So one argument is that this the, the Red Bull argument. Dr. Helmer Marco is on the record saying this that you know Mercedes was a, a fan of this rule change because they struggle in traffic. So if you make it sort of easier for everybody to follow, then they're going to benefit. 
but at the same time you don't know sort of like if as you said ben or you hinted at like if you're going to do something that could potentially fundamentally change the behavior of the car maybe so all of a sudden the really high base mercedes has been working from the last few years sort of changes and and they slip back is it's it got so close between mercedes ferrari and red bull at the end of last year that you only need a small difference small change like that and suddenly the all conquering 10 title winning team of the last five years slips down to second or third best and they're going to have to work really hard on the aero front because you just get the feeling now that on the engine side things are kind of leveling off there a bit i mean mercedes still massively leads the way i think in terms of um performance and durability together but ferrari uh you know, at times last year, it was felt that Ferrari had the stronger engine and they've certainly, in performance terms, and they've certainly improved on reliability. And if, if big if, Honda can get in the mix too, we know how strong Red Bull on the aero side. So suddenly the whole picture starts to get much more complicated and that adds extra pressure on the work Mercedes is doing. They've really had to up their game as a team as well over the past few years, haven't they? From starting from a position of superiority at the beginning of the hybrid era in terms of the, the car itself. Uh, the the car was so much better at that time that it flattered a lot of the operational mistakes they were making. Whereas as the opposition have got closer, particularly Ferrari, they they really have had to shape up. So and still making some of those operational yeah. mistakes as well. We saw in twenty eighteen them lose a few points, a few results to bad calls on the pit wall. So there's definitely um, scope for. Mercedes to be opened up on that score as things get more complicated. If Red Bull really get into the mix properly this year, then you know that really does create strategic headache for a team like Mercedes, which which previously was used to just racing itself and then became kind of used to just watching Ferrari. Well, let's move on to Red Bull. Seems an appropriate moment, Stuart Codling. It's a big year with that switch to, to Honda engines. Red Bull was probably the strongest car aero-wise last year. So in a way, it's the most exciting the new cars isn't it because it's this combination of well you've got a very very good car probably they could have messed it up you never know and then the honda engine which is the big the big unknown for this season it's fanciful to expect it to be at mercedes ferrari level but how close can it be will it be in a position to snipe for victories like red bull renault could will it be further away from that will it be able to compete more often it's it's the big unknown you kind of feel like this is a team that's rediscovered its mojo after a few seasons relatively in the doldrums don't you uh, we've, we've seen seasons where they've kicked off the year with quite an unsophisticated looking car there's been talk of Adrian Newey being demotivated or distracted by the other projects it kind of feels like they've really really got back into focus this past year certainly towards the end of last year that car really was not just sophisticated in terms of its aerodynamics but also really really efficient you don't see them uh, complaining about being disrupted more by following other cars in the way that Mercedes say that their car suffers. So that's interesting. And really what, what will turn it will be the, the way they make that relationship with Honda work. Certainly the Toro Rosso-Honda relationship worked principally because of Franz Tost and his experience of working in Japan when he was um, Ralph Schumacher's bag carrier. Um, he he kind of knows how to manage a relationship with a Japanese company, the the etiquette you have to observe and, and how to really get the most out of them. And you've you've seen Honda finding 
confidence to experiment, whereas previously it felt like they were constrained and that every time they got something wrong, they'd be slapped down by McLaren in public. What we really don't want to see happen is for Christian Horner, who's quite a forthright and outspoken kind of person, treating them in the same way that he began to treat Renault uh, over the past few seasons, because that was a relationship that started off well and then fell apart. They were paying a lot more to Renault, though. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, in that, in that situation. So you, it's a slightly different dynamic, arguably. Um, yeah, yeah, there is that sort of customer relationship. You expect to get what you're paying for. Uh, and and I suppose the other thing we should point out is that they switched to Honda for a reason. They have access to all the data through their relationship with Toro Rosso. So there must have been a really, really compelling uh, argument in the data to suggest ripping up their agreement with Renault and, and proceeding with Honda. Well, they feel that they won't be any worse off, don't they? That's the... Ultimately, that's the bottom line. They think the Honda and Renault engines are roughly equivalent. So why pay all this money for an engine from an organization that we don't trust and don't get on with anymore when we could try this other product, which we think is about the same, but offers all the untapped potential that we aren't aware of? Of course, the big question is, will the Red Bull Honda relationship just follow a mirror image of the McLaren Honda relationship with different people accepted and start off with this bright new hope and then eventually get into tension when if and when things don't quite go according to plan and then you get the public pressure and then you get the overreactions and then the whole cycle kicks off again hopefully not Formula 1 needs Red Bull Honda really to be successful because it will make the spectacle more engaging um going back to launch season i would probably not read too much into what we see from red bull in launch and testing i mean they tend to push their deadlines quite hard i know last season they tried to bring all that forward a bit so they gave themselves more time to prove durability and not have the kind of problems they had over the early races of 17 but with a new engine partner coming in they'll probably want to spend pre-season testing just proving the installation of that and making sure they've got everything working and they'll probably add the real aero parts when we only when we get to melbourne so um knowing how red bull works and how far they can push their deadlines i would i would expect the the launch car not to really look very much like the car they'll actually race might even end up that uh we don't really see the the proper car until the start of the european season one of the things that red bull has had to do because you've got the arrangement with Torosso, which comes with uh, this year sort of pushing the, the limits of the regulation for what uh, a team can supply to to, to another um, with the listed and non-listed parts. Um, Torosso's and Red Bull are engaging in that relationship a lot more uh, this year. So one of the elements to that is those parts of Torosso are taken off Red Bull. Red Bull has had to get those, those designs uh, fin- finished, uh, manufactured, tested everything uh, earlier than I, I suspect Red Bull themselves would like because they have a duty to make sure that the parts are there and ready for Torosso. And Torosso, while they're taking these parts, they don't necessarily have the infrastructure that Red Bull does to sort of manage that really late, last minute, sort of, God, getting everything ready in time. But the the thing that interests me the most about the, the Red Bull Honda launch is it's that brilliant thing where it's the complete opposite of, of, of Haas. So Haas is a car that I don't particularly care what the specification of the car is and uh, the performance-wise doesn't really interest me from a competitive uh, point of view. But I'm curious to see what it looks like because it's going to have a brand new livery. With Red Bull Honda, the, the, the launch doesn't bother me at all. I, it's going to be last year's car but with a little H on it instead of instead of a Tag Heuer uh, logo. But I, 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 wanna, I really wish I could be there for... You know, if they do a shakedown next next week, 
which is what they did last year, shut the car down a week before launch. Um, I, I, you, you want to be there because McLaren experienced this before. Other people have experienced this before. A shakedown can be where you go, okay, everything. If everything goes to plan, it's kind of a yep. Yeah, we're going. We're ticking all the boxes. Everything's getting running. This is fine. Everything's cool. Go to Barcelona next weekend. We're not going to lose any running. Or if it does go tits up at shakedown, you can think, hang on a second, this shouldn't be a problem. Why is this a problem? We've only got five days to fix this before. And then it's like, okay, that's that's. It's just going to set the tone, isn't it, for that relationship? It's the first time, although they've had all, they've got all this data from Toros, so they've got all this experience from last year. It's the first time Honda's product would run on track with Red Bull, whether that's shakedown or the first day of testing. That's what I'm most interested to sort of get a little bit of insight from. Yes, that moment where you've you've strung your lights up around the Christmas tree and then you plug it in and flick the switch and they don't come on, which is the the experience a lot of teams get in in shakedown, which just kicks off the whole year in a very negative way doesn't it or the cat is busy attacking the top of the christmas tree while you're plugging the lights in depends on how well behaved your felines are of course the moral of the story is get a dog uh there is that uh and but but before we descend too far into irrelevance we should probably cover off too the like, other important you've, where you've, we've gone you've long, less, been, less, you've long since descended into irrelevance. <laughs> were you, <laughs> e- were you ever relevant let's climb out of that rabbit hole isn't uh, descent into irrelevance your autobiography title it's certainly <laughs> one of the chapters early on Early on, <laughs> age six, it it was then that I realised that my life had no one meaning. During my seven years in catering, <laughs> the last so, two thirds of the autobiography will just be called postscript. <laughs> Peaked age five. Connor, what serious point were you going to make? I, I've almost forgotten because it seems so long That's ago. Not what this is about? This is about Formula One launches, not plugging your own books. Well, you you were the one who Shameless. mentioned my autobiography. Uh, you the, gave me that backhander earlier. Guys, a few, Codd- few hundred quid. I mentioned. Codd- is trying to be super serial, make a super serial point. <sighs> I was on. going to be profound and mention that the the main difference between the the Red Bull Honda and Red Bull Renault relationship is that one is a pure customer relationship, whereas the other one was tainted by the fact that Red Bull were customers of Renault and increasingly competitors with them. So that's one pressure that won't exist between them. We've kept Ferrari fans long enough waiting, so I thought we'd better move on to to Ferrari. Friday, February the 15th, they launched, Scott. Lots of talk from them recently about upping the budget potentially to deal with challenges and new regs and the battle with uh, with Mercedes. Mauricio Riva Benes out as team principal. Mattia Binotto has taken that role. But I guess the big question we want to know the answer to is, is the Ferrari going to be a, a Mercedes beater? Do you, wanna, do you want that answer now? Like, I, definitive? I'd, I'd like you to take all the available evidence and come up with a, a conclusion that's right to within 1% error bars. Well, the car's going to be red. No, sure? Yeah, fairly confident Bold. the car's going to be red. Um, uh, rumours in Italy suggest a slightly darker shade of red, sort of more, sort of maybe sort of more to a cherry red. Yeah, they've done that before, haven't they? Sort of oh seven, oh eight. Yeah. They they if, went. If darker. anyone's, if anyone listening or even in this room has seen the um, the Ducati MotoGP livery for this season, which looks really mean, you know, it's really cool. The suggestion is it's sort of going to take a cue from that. That's quite cool. If it does that, the car will look good. Um, but pretty car isn't necessarily a fast car. Um, the the one good thing for Ferrari is that what one of the suggestions with Mattia Bonotto becoming team principal over Maurizio Riva Bene is a concern that Gary Anderson has raised and so have other people is that he's a very good man manager of the technical team he's a very good technical engineer so is this going to distract him from what he's really good at and therefore is the 2019 car you know are they going to be a better team 
but have a worse car. The one thing you could probably say to Ferrari fans to to sort of allay those concerns is that the majority of the formative work on the 2019 car was done by the time that this decision was made and Bonotto was moved into his different role. So the starting point for the 2019 Ferrari should be very good. It's been getting better and better since Bonotto's been involved. That was first on the engine side when he led the engine department. He turned that around because that was a shower or something I'm probably not allowed to say on the podcast. And then he's worked through the, in his chief technical officer role, he's, he's turned the actual quality of, of the output of the, of the race car itself around. So he's obviously very good. And he should, Ferrari, there is there is no reason, logically, looking at the available evidence for Ferrari to be any worse. We know they've got more money being put into it. We know that of the pot that they already had, which was already, you know, pretty extensive, they, in theory, should have more available to them because um, they've got, they're paying their drivers less. So if you say you've got like a finite 100% amount of money and only and whatever's left over after you've paid your drivers and your team personnel and you've had your engine fees and stuff, that's what you put towards your R&D. A few million quid less to have Charles Leclerc in your car than Kimi Raikkonen. Probably last year had more money in from Sauber because they had a contemporary engine deal instead of a year-old engine deal. They'd had two years of this year they'll have the prize money for finishing second in the Constructors' Championship again. So it's two years of sustained second-place prize money after dipping to third when they when they had that, that slump in 2016. So there's there's more money there's more money in the pot. They're making more money available. I'm not entirely sure, given how much money they've got, that their financial resources was the reason that they, they failed last year. But, well, they're but, Ferrari, aren't they? they? They can put what they want to put into it. I think that it sends the message that they're increasing their commitment exactly. to Formula 1 after a period of maybe wavering on that slightly. Um, I, get, I get the sense that they feel they're on the cusp of mounting a proper challenge and that's why they're making these kind of moves. It's like, okay, a bit more budget thrown in the car. They're just trying to tip it over the edge, aren't they? Yeah, we, 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 we realise our management structure wasn't quite right last year and maybe that was the main reason to blame for missing out on the title or creating an environment in which our star driver made too many mistakes to win the championship and they feel like if we just eliminate those problems there's nothing to stop us we've got the best engine in formula one now we've got a car that's capable we've got a driver that's capable if we just create these final conditions we can do it the the key thing will not be overreacting when you're at that point you know you mentioned 2015 and the engine turnaround they had a great season then Vettel's first in Ferrari won a few races almost beat Rosberg to second in the championship and then they went for that they went for broke with the 2016 car and talked pre-season about their you know, aggressive aero and packaging and all these efficiencies they were making in the car was was troublesome so the big challenge for Ferrari is will be not essentially throwing the baby out with the bathwater as they approach the new rules there's also a couple of question marks maybe over the pace of development and how they've actually been able to improve the car because we did see them put uh, a few elements onto the car last year that didn't work and they had to uh, revert back as one of our former colleagues would say to previous specs to move forward so th- there's a couple of reservations there in terms of whether they've gone in the right direction on development and given, that would be on Bonotto as well won't it absolutely yeah. but given this is the sort of time of the you, you mentioned that at the, at the beginning you know cautious optimism everyone's sort of thinking oh this is going to be my year we all start from zero all of the, the usual sort of cliches um at, at, at the risk of sort of fueling that enthusiasm about ferrari what i would say is that 
things do look really, really promising for for 2019 because they had an even okay. They 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 dropped the ball, but they did have a stronger 2018 than they had 2017. They clearly worked out what they'd done wrong in developing the 2018 car because they dropped it, went back, and they were stronger at the end of the year after doing that. If they've been able to address that, that could be the the, the missing piece in the puzzle for them because they're going to have a calmer man in charge. The environment within the team should be better. You, I think you're going to have an environment there where you're going to get the most out of Sebastian Vettel because he's not the sort of driver that responds well. He's a very emotional driver, as you've touched on before, Ed. So he won't particularly excel in an environment where he's under pressure and he doesn't have a team boss that's sort of more arm around the shoulder, which I think Bonotto might might well prove to be. And I think Leclerc, although it's a bit of a gamble, I think Leclerc is going to be good in a second driver uh, second driver role at least and I think he's going to push Vettel in a way that gets more out of Vettel rather than cause Vettel to crumble because the key difference between Leclerc coming into Ferrari and when Ricardo came into Red Bull is at that point Vettel's won four straight world championships all of a sudden the competitiveness of the team completely slumps I think it wasn't it can't have been too much longer before that that, that Vettel had become a father as well so it was a very different situation for him to be in at the time. And I think at that point you can be forgiven for dropping your game at the time when someone who is as tenacious and hungry and and unforgiving as Ricardo comes in with a point to prove alongside you. And while Leclerc does have a point to prove, he also knows which side his bread's buttered. And I think Vettel's in a slightly more motivated position. So I think if all of those factors come together, it could be a really, really impressive attacking sort of Ferrari, Vettel, Leclerc combination this year. I suspect it won't take... I mean, Ferrari should be stronger this year than they were last year. Vettel to win the championship, that's what I heard from Scott. Well, and the other thing is, it's not not going to take them a giant step to be able to then win a championship from where they're from. So it could be be very close between Ferrari and Mercedes, actually. That would be potentially a fascinating battle. Without the mistakes, he could have won the championship. Well, yeah, very much so, so. very much so. Yeah, that's that's how close they were. Yeah. Well, we've talked about the big four teams. Let's have a, a, a quick whistle-stop tour of, of the rest of the field. Uh, I'm going to ask everyone to pick out a, a team they're particularly interested in uh, or they're particularly excited about. Uh, Codders, let you have a first pick. I'm going to go for McLaren because it's a very interesting driver lineup. We've got Carlos Sainz, who really does have a point to prove. Uh, he, he's a very good driver uh, so far as... You know, in, in my estimation, in my estimation, he's a very good driver. Um, but there have been times when he kind of maybe hasn't performed as, as expected. He has been occasionally disappointing. So, really, this this is his opportunity to make his mark. And also, Lando Norris as well comes in very highly rated. But you have to say that Formula Two last year, after a really really mega start. Um, he kind of lost it a little bit, didn't always perform well in qualifying. So he's also got a point to prove. The team themselves have a point to prove as much of themselves that they can still design uh, Grand Prix winning cars because they've been in the doldrums for most of this decade now. Uh, and, and it's been quite a, a shabby and embarrassment filled past few seasons for them. They've been hirings and firings. They've changed the colour of the car. They've put a few new logos on they've taken more logos off and a lot going on yeah it's, of it's they've lost that big Kamoa sponsorship deal yeah yeah that huge and lucrative Kamoa <laughs> sponsorship deal so I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that pans out fascinating uh, it'll be fascinating to see and really from the point of view of 
regardless of what happens, it's going to be interesting. I think more mediocrity would be disappointing. They're a team that we know from from the metrics of our website are hugely popular, so we, we wish them well. My reservation has been that very often with new hirings, it seems to have been sort of Zach Brown's mates, such as Gilda Ferran, who comes in and he's got this sporting director role. And you think, okay, well, what, where does where does his role begin and end? Uh, and and he, he tells you precisely the ins and outs of what he's supposed to be doing. And then you hear that actually he's going to be uh, overseeing the Indy 500 thing. Then we see he's doing this extreme E thing. You kind of think, well, well sure, you should be focusing. Laser focused on F1. Laser focused on F1, yes. Um, so I think the key, there's an echo in here. Well, Scott is sort of doing this weird sort of, um, he looked almost like Daryl Hannah in Splash, this sort of pose that he's adopted relax. on the sofa. Just, just enjoy it. It's top. extraordinary. It's the low-cut top. It's off. the plunging, Scott Mitchell's plunging neckline. I'm just enjoying the chat. <laughs> I'm, 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 I, had, I had reservations. Name about, for a band. I had reservations about doing one of these office-based podcast recordings with sofas rather than it, yeah, It's just ending up stupid. It's just showing that Scott's not so, making it So before Scott carries on being in, intensely loose, I'll finish my thought. Andreas Seidel, a key hire and, and a very, it could be, a, yeah, from Porsche, uh, a significant figure, a great team player, and probably be one of these people who quietly gets the job done. So over to over to the Louche uh, sofa dweller to my right. I, 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 I want to hear Ben. I want to hear Ed. I'm, I, as everyone who can hear this can't see, I'm really relaxed and chilled right now. Well, I just well, want to hear you guys Let's chat. Scott work himself up again into being, uh, being ready to talk. Let's go to Ben. Which team are you salivating over? <laughs> I don't know about salivating. Let me mop mop my salivating <laughs> jaw before I tell you. Um, I'm going to go for the team, the artist formerly known as Force India and shall be known as Racing Point, we think, or some variation That's thereof. what it is currently, yeah. Um, yeah, a team uh, used to punching above its weight, um, fourth in the championship in 2017. Probably should have been fourth in the championship last year as well. Sorry, Renault, but... Um, no, been through a lot with change of ownership, going into administration, coming out of administration, consortium led by Lawrence Stroll now in charge, pouring fresh investment in. Um, it'll be exciting to see what that team, we know a very capable team of designers, engineers. Laser focused. Uh, la- absolutely laser focused, no distractions, can do when they're properly resourced. And what they've been able to do when they've not been properly resourced has been phenomenal. So a Force India team with the right funding could be a real exciting prospect in the championship. Um, and then as a side to that, we get to see also really how Lance Stroll properly stacks up. You know, he's had a couple of seasons in Formula One, one against Felipe Massa on his way out, but he was a rookie Stroll. So, you know, it was difficult when you're new. And then last season, Williams in a massive slump, a rookie teammate, didn't really seem like he was massively enjoying himself and particularly interested now he's going into a you know a well-funded operation a team with a great track record up against a very well-established uh, team leader in Sergio Perez so we'll get to see what Lance Stroll is really made of as a Formula One driver too. I thought you were about to make a insightful point Scott. No, no he's, just, he's too busy sort of adopting the pose of Michelle Pfeiffer on, the, on the piano of the fabulous Baker boys. I've picked a team. Okay, okay. Do, would you like to would you like to take the floor? Yeah, uh, well no, I've got the sofa actually. I'm I'm fine here. It's hurting my back though. So probably... Well, that's no surprise. It doesn't look like a very comfortable What position. you need is a corset. Okay, I'm just going to move around. <laughs> it's supposed to be comfortable up. on sofas. It's not meant to hurt your back. If you can sit right. on a sofa like an adult, you'll be fine. And I'm allowed to make a point. I'm I'm sat up now. 
Okay, you're sitting, you're sitting up. You've if we're going to get well the done, past Scott. participles right, you're sitting up. I'll grow up, Codders. <laughs> Ever anyway, the you I, may talk. I'm picking uh, What's left? <laughs> I, yeah. Well, Salah. <laughs> very reliable. Don't pick Leroy Sane. He won't get started. Um, I'm picking Alfa Romeo slash Sauber. That's my. That's the team I'm interested in. Would you like to explain the slash? Uh, well, Just for be- those who may have missed it. Because... Salber has been renamed. Like, so the Salber name is not on the grid. Twenty uh, for the first time in twenty seven. Ninety three was their first season. So the first time in twenty seven years, the Salber name isn't going to be gracing the F one grid, um, which is is a shame. Salber's still there. The team is still there in, in, in the background. The Salber Motorsport as the company remains independent. It's just this is an extension of the. Salber Alfa Romeo partnership that that was uh, formed for the 2018 season. It brings Alfa Romeo back onto the grid. It's, the team will be Alfa Romeo Racing. So it's the first time since 1985, I think, that there's been a fully fledged, um, fully branded Alfa team on on the grid. Um, but it's still Salber because the team's still Salber. And even though the the team name isn't there, and the I think the chassis will be Alfa Romeo as well. Was um, it there throughout the BMW era? Yeah, the name was the still name, there. It was the BMW. BMW. And, and Peter Sauber retained a, a stake through that period right. as well. As he likes to point out when he's asked about whether he feels that his team won in Canada in 2008 rather than BMW, he likes to point out, well, I own more of the team than Ron Dennis did in McLaren. Period. So <laughs> nice. Fair Very point. Good. So go on. Kind of continuous history. Yeah. Now that we now that you've really finished interrupting, I've been a model professional through this podcast and let you ramble. So let me ramble. So uh, Alpha Sauber, however you want to talk it, I think statistically we'll probably still consider it Sauber because of the common ownership. Um, I, you've got a situation where you've got first of all, it's impossible not to get excited about Alpha. That is, it's just a cool brand. I mean, I'm sure everyone remembers things differently. For me, I think Alpha. I think. Gabriele Tarquini in a 155 um, in the British Touring Car Championship in 1994. So it's absolutely, absolutely, it's Tarquini. Um, I think Alphas is one of those brands that I think it does genuinely uh, trigger different memories and emotions for different people, but it it is an emotive manufacturer. So that's really cool that that's back properly. So that's exciting in itself. But with that, it's part of this sort of ongoing Sauber revival. The 2014 to 2017 years feel like they happened to a different team now. Last year was fantastic to see that, see Peter Sauber's eponymous team sort of back to sort of those glory days of uh, of being a proper underdog. It ended the year being the most regular uh, threat to, to, to the top 10 in qualifying and the race behind um, behind the big three teams and Renault. So, it's really impressive what it's it's merged into. The investments increasing all the time. The um the technical capacity is better than it's probably ever been. There's uh, been a an ongoing staffing drive that isn't over, and they've got Fred Vasseur in charge. And I think everyone who's who's had the, the the pleasure of working in the championship where Fred's operating, he's a professional. And to 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 coin a a motorsport cliche he's a racer he isn't he isn't here for the paddock bullshit he's not here for the all, all of that politics he's here to do a good job he's doing at Sauber and now Alfa Romeo with that works affiliation what he probably wanted but couldn't do at Renault and I just think that there is something about this team with the momentum behind it been able to attract Kimi Raikkonen and, and we saw when, when when Kimi was at the races in Monza and and on Austin last year, like Kimi on his day is still good enough to to race and beat the the best on the grid. They've given Antonio Giovinazzi a, 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 a shot as well because of the Ferrari affiliation. So it's just a super exciting time for a team that 
from any point between 2014 and, and 2016 especially must have feared that it was going to collapse entirely and I think was it 2016 it did come very close didn't it to to falling off the grid well Mazza's points at the Brazilian Grand Prix in the wet race at the end of the season that was a save the team and cost him his drive yeah, yeah exactly yeah, of, one of the great ironies ahead of man. But it is true it seems like Sauber and Racing Point it's a worry for your McLarens and your Williamses because I was going to make exactly that yeah, point exactly yeah. as well I, I, I'm making it better obviously. go on uh, but he read your mind. <laughs> but you, you've got it's these you've got these teams that you your reflexes that yeah, Williams and McLaren sort of belong above them, but they don't. And no. there are maligned teams and um new teams in the case of Haas who are building real momentum now. Yeah, yeah. And, and and they're also know. teams that have, have been able to make progress. No, racing point have achieved miracles in increasingly difficult situations. And then Sauber, what they did last year, they're doing things that that Williams and McLaren haven't been able to do recently. No, they've stagnated it? or regressed, haven't they? That's the, yeah, the big yeah, worry. Yeah, very much so. So if you're particularly if you're Williams and you're trying to move forward from the back, you start thinking, well, who's the obvious team to pick off? And you think, well, Sauber could be at the front of the midfield. Racing Point could be. You know, that's well, Williams become almost terrifying. the new Sauber, don't they? Struggling on the track, less money, struggling for investment, and suddenly two years on, you go, oh no, we're Sauber, and Sauber yeah, yeah. are where we want to be. Yeah, yeah downward spiral. I think everyone wants to see Williams doing well, but it's, course, uh, it's yeah. a big year for them. We need to see that they've all this process work they've talked about doing has has paid dividends, and they've, they they need to kind of. See, I feel like they're a team that just needs a reset point, much like McLaren. Whereas, of course, Racing Racing Point and uh, and Sauber are building on something that was already there last year. I think um, I think Williams and M- McLaren, because of the way they operate, the the, the way the businesses are, and, and what they are as F one teams. I think they're um, they're in trouble unless they entice, uh, they, they somehow get a, a serious, successful works partnership going. Because Martin Brundle said at the Autosport International show um, uh, last month that Williams and McLaren fall into this weird void that nobody else really sits in, in F1 at the moment. You've got your big works teams and... Your B teams. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. Because they, they are small, big teams, basically. Yeah, and you can't... You know, as McLaren and Williams, when you're, it's difficult enough to fight at the front where when you're when you're just a customer. When you're effectively a secondary customer, that that's that's problematic. And for for for, for Williams, obviously, like Racing Point, that's not like a Merc B team, but they have their they've picked their battles, haven't they? They know where their strategic alliances lie. They they uh, Andy Green and his technical team take care of what they can take care of, but they have relationships in place with, with with Mercedes to sort of get the most out of that that that, that they can to sort of re- almost sort of lift the burden McLaren and Williams still try and do everything themselves they're almost sort of over over engineering their cars in a, in a way and that doesn't really do a great job of putting across what I want to say but it's just like they're, they're causing too much problems for themselves they don't really fit into the way modern F1 is and unless the only way to get themselves out of that is to embrace a customer philosophy and go absolutely hard and try and become a proper B team, which doesn't fit with either of their ethos or history. Um, or they find someone else to come in. Like I don't know, but I don't know who that would be. Or, well, or Williams or had the, Williams had the stroll money, didn't they? And they had a good engine deal with Mercedes. They still have a Mercedes engine deal, but that. And sort of that, money as well. That, that, that's all kind of slowly unravelled as things haven't gone as well as they should on track. And of course, McLaren had their works partnership, but it blew up spectacularly. So both of those teams are in that that horrible trough where you've had a plan of action. And in Williams' case, it worked to begin with. In McLaren's case, it never, never worked. Um, but there's a lot of pain involved in extricating yourself from that 
once you've decided it's gone wrong or someone else has decided it's gone wrong and left you and they have to they're going through rebuilding processes aren't they from a commercial point of view as well if you're a team like mercedes and you enjoy success on that of that magnitude you can afford to have a car that isn't plastered with uh, big brand stickers and and you can actually be choosy about who you partner with because they're coming to you for exposure whereas if you're a mclaren or or williams in a position they're in at the moment they aren't getting that revenue from prize money so they have to go cap in hand to sponsors and those cars look frighteningly shorn of sponsorship certainly mclaren in the past few years it's looked absolutely redolent in its semi-priority but there's nothing on it it's not there anymore the models are as you say be a manufacturer team or a manufacturer backed team that can fill your budget for you or have a massive uh, massively wealthy owner or investor in the case of red bull or now uh, racing point which you know, could, that could have been or was Williams' money. I think it's so. going to be a real battle for both McLaren and and Williams. It's it's going to be it's going to be tough for them this year. I'm I'm just going to pick Haas to mention partly because they're one of the few <laughs> that are left. But actually, although Scott said he wasn't that excited about the car, well, you mentioned Williams I'm, already. Well, so. <laughs> I'm, I'm you're quite, picking two. I'm excited about maybe seeing no, a can of rich energy. That's what I want to see. I want to see. I want to hold one in my hand. This, I just don't want to drink it. It's probably foul. Well, but the, 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 as well, most energy drinks we, are. We should, well, yeah, you should, we should say you haven't tried it yet. So we'll we'll try and uh, we'll try and get you introduced to one so you can give your official uh, official verdict. But no, the, in terms of the team, I'm interested to see. The reason I'm interested in Haas is they kind of flew under the radar a little bit last season we could see they were going quite well in pre-season testing but they did have on average the fourth quickest car and that's that's impressive and it'd be interesting to see if there's much of a change in terms of the the, the way they approach the aero so obviously Delara do it with use of, of Ferrari facilities I'm quite interested to see what Haas can can do because they were potentially best of the rest last year yeah they the just spunked good results at the beginning uh, they of the did season, they, yeah they? They, they cost themselves some results so i think that's a team that we shouldn't let fall through the cracks because it is kind of the most pure manifestation of what what ben you were just talking about with being kind of a a b team or, or almost it's it's riding on the on the coattails of, of ferrari you know it's a team that needs a company like delara connected to it to to make a car so it's quite an ethereal team but it's worked really really well and last year you know, to have an average of the fourth fastest car, very impressive. So, uh, yeah, I'm interested to see what they uh, what they come up with. Nobody else wants to pass judgment. Oh, Scott, Scott's going for something. I'll, I'll be interested to see if the uh, the Haas Ferrari stuff erupts into anything tangible this Every year. Every time Haas does well, some people have a moan about it. Probably that's my prediction. I know, no, I know, but my, but what <laughs> Ferrari I, what, copy. What I'm curious to see is whether it actually amounts to anything because. At the start of last year, and this is one of the things that really disappointed me about 2018, after the Australian Grand Prix, it was at least two teams, Force India as it was then and McLaren, both made it clear that they wanted clarification from the FIA over how they made sure that what Haas and Ferrari were doing weren't uh, weren't in violation of anything, that Haas wasn't simply copying Ferrari's aerodynamic stuff or that they weren't violating a... Sharing some, secrets, some, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I asked several times through the year if either team had actually sought those clarifications. And, like, no one did. They were like, oh, yeah, well, you know, like this thing happens, so we had to carry on. It's like, no, no, if you're going to make that serious allegation in public, follow it up with an actual, with a letter or an official inquiry to the FA and just say, look, what can you tell us to reassure us about this? Because we trust you. If you tell us, 
that you've done all your necessary checks and balances and this is fine then then we'll drop it but it was that it's that snidey bitchy sort of back behind the scenes sort of like oh we're really angry at this we're not going to do anything about it part of the game though isn't it stirring the pot you know whenever in any well any sport but certainly in motorsport whenever a team that is kind of written off or a competitor is written off as not really being that competitive you, you fly under the radar like you said ed as soon as you start getting tangible results you put noses out of joint and people like to to throw brickbats at you to see how you react and to just destabilize you that's really what it was it's a destabilizing tactic against Haas and they've got themselves into various kind of spats haven't they had that thing with Renault at the end of last season and 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 then you know then they're kind of into uh, a tit for tat with Force India over you know commercial money you know this this is all part of the the Formula 1 battle you know Haas Haas is doing Formula 1 on a model that's very different from all the other teams you know they've come into this B team thing from the start rather than having to kind of adjust an existing operation to get there and that is causing the teams that they're embarrassing effectively uh to get quite upset but maybe not upset in a really indignant this is horrendous and the worst thing I've ever seen way just in a you know we shouldn't really be being beaten by this team even though they've they're using the rules in this way so we need to try and get under their skin so that they might be distracted enough to drop more points and we can beat them in the championship. The Monza exclusion sounds like a rejected title for a Robert Ludlum novel. <laughs> or John Grisham. Yeah, maybe. I think this is a, that's a very, very good moment to uh, to wrap things up. I think that's a, that's a clear signal. But you've been relatively well-behaved, Connors, and I hope, uh, hope people have enjoyed the, uh, the whimsy you've brought to the podcast. That's what we have you here for. He's saving his upgrades until the season starts proper, isn't he? This is just... Test and test, launch spec test, Testing the new material gently. He's tricking us into thinking he's still just the same as last year, but actually there's going to be some... Red some, Bull games. Yeah. High-end uh, high end puns and comments to uh, to come as the season progresses. Well, I uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, listening to this. Thanks to Scott Mitchell, Stuart Codling and Ben Anderson for uh, for your contributions. Uh, do head to autosport.com to follow all the latest news from these launches as they happen. Uh, through next week, there's basically something happening every day, so there'll be plenty of material there to, to read through every time you uh, you log on check out our plus subscriber area all sorts of in-depth coverage of the whole world of motorsport formula we'll have lots of in-depth features on the new cars as they emerge from gary anderson and jake boxall leg our, our technical editor please check out sister titles motorsport.com f1 racing magazine out monthly and motorsport news out weekly and if you fancy a flutter please download the pit stop betting app thanks for joining us we'll be back soon with another autosport podcast <laughs>
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The, is it morning yet? Deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 